If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up from him, come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised from him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reveling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet again against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. If you are new with us, I would love to say first, welcome. So glad to have you here, but you got a lot of catching up to do. We have been in Acts for six months, six and a half months or so, and we're not even halfway done. Um, I'm going to recap some of the stuff that we've been seeing in Acts and get us in the, get the context ready, and then I'm going get, to get into our text today. So the book of Acts opens 40 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Yes, a man named Jesus lived, died rose from the dead. He wandered around the countryside eating and drinking with his friends for 40 days. 
And then he ascended into heaven. On the day that he ascended, he was gathered, uh, his, his disciples were gathered around him on a mountain. He said to them, wait in the city. Um, God will imbue you or endow you with power to be my witnesses. And then he floated up into the air. The people who were there were caught standing around looking at this amazing scene. And it says an angel appeared and said, why are you staring into the sky? The obvious answer is because a man just floated up into the sky. I don't know. Seemed like the right thing to do. Um, After this moment, the, the, the disciples, the apostles are together. They're praying. About a week later, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're filled with power, joy. They're spilled out in the streets with spontaneous praise. Peter stands up in the midst of the crowd and explains what this is, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that God's Spirit has been poured out and that men and women are seeing visions and that uh, God is with them, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. People come to faith. The church is growing. It's not all easy going for the church. There are challenges with growth, right? People trying to weasel their way in and manipulate the church and... um, Practical needs of people getting lost, sort of overlooked in the distribution to the widows. But with time and effort and the power of the Spirit, the church continues to grow. Then, as if uh, to uh, re- you know, encourage the disciples, God sends persecution on them. You know, Jesus told them that you would be my witnesses into Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and into the ends of the earth. And he said, you'll receive power to go and carry this message. But they were sort of huddled in Jerusalem. So God gives them a push in the form of opposition and persecution. Stephen is martyred. The disciples are scattered. And ministry to the Gentiles begins. So what we see here, Paul and Barnabas are in a city called Antioch in Pisidia. Don't get confused. Antioch is sort of like Springfield. There's one in every state, right? So there, if you're reading Acts, you're going to get all twisted around, like, which Antioch are they in? I thought they were in Antioch. Chapter 13 begins, they're in Antioch in Syria. And then they are commissioned. The Holy Spirit says, set them apart and send them out for me. And then they end up in the halfway through the chapter in Antioch and Pisidia. So if you're not paying attention, you'll be, where did they go? I thought they left. I thought they were there. What is going on? Paul stands up and delivers a sermon, a rousing message about Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And from this sermon and the ensuing events, there are three main points that I want us to go home with today. The first is, number one, God's redemptive plan in history. Number two, God's sovereignty in the face of opposition. And number three, God's provision in the midst of trial. Okay, God's redemptive plan in history. Uh, In order to make things a little bit easier on dear Anna, who read for us, I did not have her read the entire sermon from Paul, but I will give you the recap. All right, that's my job. Paul stands up in the synagogue, and as was Paul and Barnabas' usual practice, they would go to a new city, usually in a Gentile region, right? So the Gentiles are the sort of majority culture there. But most of these places have little communities of Jews who are faithfully meeting in the synagogue. They would read in the synagogue some Old Testament passage, and then someone would sort of expound on it or talk about it a little bit, not unlike a sermon. Now, Paul, if you know anything about Paul, is a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was trained by this guy, Gamaliel, who was apparently like the greatest Pharisee teacher, rabbinical teacher of his age. And so Paul had a PhD from Harvard Divinity School. And when he showed up in your little, you know, uh, countryside Bible, Bible church, 
you wanted the guy with all the learning to come and talk to you. So Paul was invited to speak. And Paul, being a guy who never, never passes up an opportunity to talk about Jesus, he stood up, grabbed the bull by the horns, and gave a rousing sermon. All right, so he begins by talking about the Old Testament. And he mentions like eight or nine different Old Testament events kind of in succession, basically an overview of the history of the Jewish culture, the Jewish um, people in the Old Testament, a history actually covering about 1,500 years worth of time. So broad, broad overview. Uh, And if you're reading it, maybe you're like me. I read, I was like, what is Paul getting at? He's just recounting all this old history stuff. I can't quite see what the point of it is. He obviously ends with Jesus because, you know, the answer in church is always Jesus, but I don't get it. Well, I think not only is it is the content of Paul's message important, but it's also the way that he communicates it. What Paul does when he talks to them about this history, which most of them would have known, is he doesn't say things like, the Israelites were a people looking for a God and God found them. He says, God chose them. He doesn't say the Israelites escaped out of Egypt. He says, God delivered them with a mighty right hand. He doesn't say the Israelites wandered in the desert. He said, God put up with them in the desert. He doesn't say Israel had to remove the nations to go into the promised land. He said, God gave them the promised land. God gave them a king. When Saul was a bad king, he gave them David. And in the course of time, God gave them Jesus. What Paul is getting at is God is the actor in history, the initiator, the one who brings it about. Yes, men live their lives but usually they're falling right into God's plan. Now, modern Christians, we often misunderstand the role and the purpose of the Old Testament. I've heard many Christians today say things like, well, you know, I'm confused about the Old Testament. God seems so angry. It's kind of mean. You know, I like God in the New Testament. Jesus loves everybody. I don't read the Old Testament. Or people will say things like, oh, but Jesus, he came and uh, he's the great, uh, greatest revelation of God. So we don't need the Old Testament. It's obsolete. I think both of those statements miss something. They betray a misunderstanding of what the purpose of the Old Testament is. And that's what Paul is trying to bring out for his audience. He reviews this history in order to get their minds jogging, to bring into the forefront of their minds all these events and the symbolism of these events, the meaning of these events, the idea that God is the actor in history. God chose Israel to be his people. Why? Because God wanted a nation to be his evangelistic witness in the world. He was looking for human ambassadors to carry his values, his truth, and his character, to say to the surrounding nations, this is what God is like. Abandon your idols and come to us because we have the true revelation of the true God. Now, sadly, the nation of Israel never really lived up to this call. They had been recipients of God's miraculous power in Egypt, in the wilderness, and in the promised land, yet they failed to keep God first in their lives. But God graciously gave them Moses, and Moses continued to work with them. Now, when Moses was about to die, he prophesied that God would raise up another prophet, like himself, greater than Moses, in fact. And as the people went into the promised land, they had many leaders, judges, These judges won key military victories, but they weren't greater than Moses. Prophets like Samuel. Samuel was a great prophet. He even instilled the kingship, but he wasn't greater than Moses. 
So the people were still looking for that fulfillment, something greater. Now, God had called the people when he originally called them to be his people, to be different, to stick out in a sense. I want you to live differently from the nations that surround you. But after time, the people started to say, you know, God, we actually want to be like the nations around us. I mean, they have kings and we know who to go to, who's going to be in charge of what. Like this whole thing with you raising up a judge here and there or a prophet here and there, we don't know what to expect. Uh, we want to be like the other nations. That statement is a complete rejection of their call. God called them to be different. And they said, actually, no, we want to be like the other nations. So the people of Israel failed to represent God to the nations around them. And in so doing, God acquiesced. He gave them a king. Now, the thought was maybe if you have one person who is the example, one person to represent God to the people, that they would do better. And so you see the king Saul comes along and he looks like he might be a good king. He's tall, he's good looking, you know, leaders, that's what leaders are made of. But he quickly falls. He quickly becomes a victim of his own pride and ambition. So then God calls another to be king, David. And this is what the scripture says about David. Paul quotes this. He says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Ah, yes, finally, the perfect servant, the faithful one, the faithful messenger, David will do it. And if you look at David's life, he starts out pretty well. But by the end of his life, the kingdom is in shambles. He's committed murder. He's committed adultery. He clearly hasn't lived up to this measure, to this standard of what it would be to be God's perfect servant, his great representative in the world. But because of these statements about David, a man after my heart, there were many prophecies that came later about, I will establish David's throne forever. There's this great anticipation, this great hope that someone in David's lineage will be that man. Will that be that great messenger, that great representative of God? And so by mentioning David in this line of history, Paul is bringing this to the people's mind. Well, the nation failed to provide God with a faithful witness. The prophets and the kings fell short. What is a God to do? You can't find good help anywhere. Well, he sent his son. Not like a plan B or a plan C, like, oh, those first plans didn't work out, but actually as a fulfillment of progressive revelation. The idea being that he called the nation, God knew that the nation would fail, but by giving them the call, he's putting something out in front of them, depositing something into their minds and into their hearts about his plan. And by giving them kings, they understood something about kingly authority and a kingly reign and a kingly stature and majesty, even if the king fell short of what a true king should be. All of these things, all of human history and certainly all of Israel's history, exists to create a context for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Without the nation of Israel, whom would God have sent Jesus to? Without the prophets, what prophecies would Jesus have fulfilled? Without kings, how would the people know what it means that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords? Without a sacrificial system, how would the people know the great price and cost of sin, how serious it is, and what the meaning of the crucifixion would be? Jesus doesn't just make use of religious symbolisms that are lying around in the culture of his day. Those religious symbols exist so that Jesus can use them 
so that he can stand in as the fulfillment and say, this is what God has been doing all along. I hate to admit it, but history, history is important. My wife studied history in school. I used to tell her history was lame, but it turns out it's very important. She loves it when I say that because now it makes her feel like she didn't waste four years in school and hundreds of thousands of dollars of tuition. But the Old Testament and the history contained in it is the foundation upon which the apostles give us the message of Jesus Christ. It was recorded and preserved for us so that we could fully understand who Jesus was, what he did, and how he accomplished it. Paul says this in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, that's the religious establishment, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, that is all the Old Testament history, they fulfilled those things, those prophecies, by condemning him. The Jewish leaders missed the fact that the whole Old Testament was pointing to something greater, something better on the horizon. That every time they had a new prophecy, a new call, they thought that the nation would be the great nation, but the nation failed. Or that the king would be the great king, but the king failed. That it was pointing to something and someone who would fulfill all of those hopes and all of those dreams. After reviewing this history and bringing these sort of unrequited hopes to the people's minds, Paul mentions three specific passages in the Old Testament. One about sonship. Today you're my son, I have begotten you. One about um, the blessings of David. I will give to you the sure blessings of David. And one about resurrection. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And in doing so, he is trying to connect the dots for the people. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sitting on the throne of David, because he rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. In this way, Paul has brought all of the Old Testament history together in one man, Jesus Christ. And he tells the people forgiveness is available through this man. From the beginning, God has been inviting men and women to be his representatives on the earth. But because of our rebellious hearts, we have either rejected his call outright, like the nation, or we have tried but failed, like the kings. But now in Jesus Christ, God finally has his faithful servant. So God's redemptive plan in history, God is the main actor in history, and he has brought it all about so that we could receive Jesus Christ as our Messiah. Second, God's sovereignty in opposition. Paul says this very clearly in his sermon. Jesus Christ was crucified by unwitting men who fulfilled God's plan. This is a scandalous statement. Not that men would unwittingly do what God wanted. That happens all the time. But that God killed the Messiah. In that same verse 27, we see this. He says, the Jewish leaders basically fulfilled these prophecies about Jesus' suffering, that God is the one who ordained it, who told it beforehand. Now, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he says very similar things. And this is the way Peter puts it. This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you have it. An unabashed and unashamed, unequivocal statement of God's sovereign action in the cross. Not only was God the main actor in all of history, not only did he bring Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but he killed Jesus, put him to death on the cross. And now, if we continue to read this passage, we see that God is also the actor sending Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles and bringing Gentiles to faith. Paul's statement, his his sermon in the synagogue is initially met with great positivity. It says that people begged them, urged them to return. But what happened when they came back next week? Well, the Jewish leaders came with them with a lot of anger and jealousy to see all the uh, congregants leaving the the synagogue and, and chasing after Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas take an opportunity to start to preach to Gentiles. It's sort of like that song, um, Irreplaceable by uh, uh, Beyonce. You must not know about me, right? The Jewish people, they thought that they had a position of honor and privilege with God that could never be lost. They thought they were all that in the bag of chips. They thought that nothing could ever jeopardize God's favor. But what does Paul say here? He says, you have proven yourselves unworthy. You've judged yourselves unworthy of this message because you have rejected it. And because of that, we will go to the Gentiles. And just so you know that it's not like Paul rejected by his girl he wants to go out with, he's feeling bad. He says, I'll just, I'll just date someone else. He quotes Isaiah 49. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This prophecy was given 700 years before. It has always been God's plan that he would raise up people who would be his representatives and carry his message to the ends of the earth. So the rejection of Paul's message on this day by these Jews simply gives Paul an opportunity to fulfill more fully God's plan that the message would go to Gentiles. Paul is effectively stating that if the Jews don't want to join in with God's work, well, that's all right. Because those who have accepted Jesus will carry it to the next level. Paul and Barnabas were set aside for this work by the Holy Spirit in the beginning of chapter 13. And if the Jews won't get on board, God will take the message to the Gentiles. And what's the proof that God ordains this? that God approves of this, that God is blessing this. Well, in verse 48, it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and were glorifying the word of the Lord. And many, or as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Who appoints men and women to eternal life? Was it Paul? Is it Barnabas? Did they just sort of hand select the people they wanted to come to faith? No. God appoints men and women to faith to eternal life. God alone can regenerate a heart. God alone sovereignly sways men and women to see the majesty of Jesus and to surrender to him. If God appoints Gentiles to eternal life, then he is putting his stamp of approval on the ministry of Paul and Barnabas among the Gentiles. If their ministry is having effectiveness and fruit amongst the Gentiles is because God has done it, not because it was man's idea. And so widespread evangelism to non-Jews commences. And what is the legacy of that great work? 
All of you, right here. From Jerusalem to Antioch and Pisidia to St. Louis. Raise your hand, Gentiles. If you follow Jesus and you recognize him as King and Lord and Messiah, it's because this. Because God ordained that someone would be his faithful remnant, his faithful servant carrying the message of faith in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So number one, God's redemptive plan in the history of Israel. Number two, God's sovereignty even with Jewish opposition. Number three, God's provision in trial. I was really struck by Paul's sermon. He ends the sermon with this note. And by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Huh. Now, I don't typically think about the law of Moses as something that is freeing me from things or failed to free me from things. So I had to really think about this. What we're probably seeing here for all of you academic types is the early seeds of Pauline theology. Paul will take this idea and expound it in his later pastoral letters. So let's have a look. In Galatians 2, he says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is, no one's sins can be totally forgiven. No one can have appropriate position with God, righteousness before God, or the acceptance of God. You can't earn it. Oh, but what was the purpose of all this law? Why was it given if it wasn't to show us how to live so we could earn God's approval? Let's see the next text. This is from Hebrews, obviously written to Jewish people. For since the law was but a shadow of good things to come, remember that idea that the whole history is pointing to something? Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near. Oh, interesting. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The whole sacrificial system, the ceremonial washings, the lambs and the bulls and the blood, the festivals, it's all to remind the people of sin. And it's a continual offering, offerings every day. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That, friends, in case you don't know, is a victory lap. That's what you do when you've completed the work and you have won. You sit down because you've got no more work to do. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, that is his self, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness, saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I thank God that he provided a way for my sins to be forgotten. Not just forgiven, but forgotten. The Hebrew word for atonement, if you're thinking, oh, I thought I got to go back and look in the Old Testament law and see, see if this is right. The Hebrew word for atonement is also translated covering. 
Meaning that the blood of bulls and goats can cover over sin, but it cannot take away sin. Uh, I have a a two-year-old and a four-year-old. We are teaching them to clean up after themselves. You can imagine how difficult that might be. Um, I think we all understand the phrase like to sweep it under the rug. Okay, so do my kids. So every time I ask them to clean up, I inevitably find some toy hidden under the rug. Maybe they put it there on purpose. Maybe they just forgot. I don't know. But once it's under there, they don't see it. And so that's what it means that God could cover over sin. He didn't see it, but it wasn't removed. He could have some relationship with his people. But now that God once and for all has provided a sacrifice that can take away sin so that sins could be forgotten, our access to God is so much greater. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to God. With him, sins are removed once and for all. And we are finally set free from what the law of Moses could not set us free from. From the presence of sin and the power of sin, both to condemn us and to corrupt us. But the scripture tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, sending his own son on account of sin in the very likeness of sinful flesh. God made us free. Amen. So in, the, in addition to this, forgiven sins, we now have a cleansed conscience, freedom from our old rebellious tendencies, the power of the Spirit to live a new life, escaping from eternal judgment. Disciples of Jesus live a life filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. That's how the passage ends. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even in the midst of outright persecution, they were filled with joy. Think about that. Some of these disciples are Gentiles who were appointed for eternal life. Some of them are Jews who received the message. Jews who were growing up in a Gentile land, in a small community, and all they knew was their synagogue, but now they've been forced out by the Jewish leadership. Yet, they are going out, leaving Antioch and Pisidia, going to other towns in full of joy and the Holy Spirit. So there you have it. God's redemptive plan in history, God's sovereignty in opposition, and God's provision in the midst of trials. What do we take away from this? Well, each of these points, I think, has an application. For God's redemptive plan in light of history, God was trying to renew Israel. That's what the message of Jesus was all about. We, those who have received the message and are faithfully walking in Jesus, we are the new Israel. Just because Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all that God had promised and was the perfect messenger, the perfect representative, does not mean that God is not still gathering to himself people to carry his value his character, and his vision, to be a light to the Gentiles. That is the family business. We talk a lot about family, the family of God being adopted in, finding family. This is our family business. That's why we talk about the blessed strategy. So B, begin with prayer. L, listen. E, eat. S, serve. S, story. All right? Five steps to get into the lives of people. Five different ways to love the city, five opportunities to display God and his character and his vision to an increasingly God-hostile culture. 
Now, one quick way to put this into practice is a national night out, if you've ever had a chance to do that. But in the past, we've had community groups get together in their neighborhoods and get involved in this. It's just an opportunity to be amongst the people, to rub shoulders, to display Christ's love and care serving with others. So I'm issuing a call to the community group leaders. Don't miss this opportunity. It's hard to represent God to people if you're not with people. So we need to be with people. Second, for God's success or God's sovereignty in the face of opposition, what does that teach us? It teaches us that there are people who God has appointed for salvation. Paul didn't know who those people were when he stood up and began to preach Jesus. But when they came to faith, he said, ah, yes, you were appointed for salvation and you were appointed for salvation. Which means that there are people around us every day, whatever domain you go into, work, school, home, whatever, who are appointed for salvation. But you can't know who they are until you preach the message, until you share Jesus and they respond. So we can go confidently to the people around us and we can share the message of Jesus Christ as the only source of forgiveness. And when they receive it, we can say, thank you, God, that you appointed this person, that I got to be a part of it. But if we try to guess, if we only share with those who look like they might be close to God or who might be receptive of our message, we might avoid some opposition, but we will not see fruit. You see, the parable of the sowers, the sower sows seed in four types of soil. Only one of those types of soil produces lasting fruit. And the scripture tells us, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So cast your seed of the gospel to everyone. The apostles, they shared with anyone who would listen and they rejoiced when they saw people coming to faith, but they didn't try to guess and they weren't worried about opposition because they knew when opposition came, that was a closed door, there would be another open door. When the Jews rejected the message, they found the Gentiles and they shared and they had fruit. And so our invitation as God's people, as the new Israel, is to do the same. Lastly, God's provision in the midst of trial. It's interesting. Jesus says, you will receive power to be my witnesses when the Spirit comes. Not power to stand and worship, not power to sway back and forth, not power to have a mountaintop experience, but power to be my witnesses. So if you're thinking, man, that sounds really cool. I wish I had that. Or I used to experience the power of the Spirit in my life, but I'm not sure. It's been a long time. It might be because we're not on mission. Last week, Dylan talked about prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie to communicate with God in the midst of the battle, the spiritual battle around us. Well, the Holy Spirit is a wartime provision for battle to fill us. If you were at Celebration Midwest, you heard Terry Virgo talk about the Holy Spirit, the, the fortification of the Holy Spirit. That is strengthening and equipping that we receive by the Holy Spirit. But why? Like Jesus said, to be my witnesses. So the promise is there. And God says that he will give his spirit immeasurably to those who ask. But we must ask for the spirit so that we can go in to battle. So we can face opposition but experience God's blessing because the fruit is out there and it's ours to have because we are the new Israel. Let's pray.